0: Welcome to this bonus episode of The District, called The Aftermath. I'm Eugene Bingham.
1: I'm Paula Penfold.
0: So since the release of the podcast, we've had a lot of people contact us with some new information, with some theories and some feedback, which we wanted to share with you. Uh, Some of it good feedback, some of it not so good
1: feedback. It was quite interesting, some of the not so good feedback. There was a bit of a theme to it. It wasn't there, and uh, it was interesting that that thing was quite consistent with some of what you encountered during the repor- uh, recording of the interviews along the way and the telling of the story, which was that, why can't you just let sleeping dogs lie idea? Quite a few people contacted us to say similar things. It's 50 years old, let it go. There are current crimes that you should be you know, spending your investigative time on, giving your attention but to me, and you know, and, and sure, there are people who hold that point of view, but to me, that's countered and balanced by the amount of feedback we've had from people who, for whom, you know, they very much do not want us to let the sleeping dogs lie. Mm. And also, I mean, there's another two things. One, that... that
0: this is an unsolved murder there hasn't been there are you know there hasn't been anybody prosecuted for it so yeah. it remains unsolved and the other thing is that for the thomases there are no sleeping dogs right lying. this
1: is very much an active case to Absolutely. them because it, the perpetrator has never been found
0: and they continue to have the finger pointed at them so you know for them it's not a case of just being able to move on they wish they could move on with their lives mm-hmm. but they can't so that's why to me it was justified doing it and of course as you say The overwhelming feedback was of people supporting us and saying, good on you for going back and having a look at this case and for also highlighting those wider issues. So So it
1: falls into two main areas, really, doesn't it? Most of the feedback, which, which are the theories about the murders themselves and, of course, the conduct of the police. Yeah,
0: and there was also reaction from some family members on the periphery of the case. And which is a reaction that kind of speaks to the intergenerational impacts of injustice that we dealt with in the podcast. And you you heard from Pat Booth's family.
1: It's really interesting, isn't it, that concept of the intergenerational effect of any injustice uh, this happens to be the one that we're looking at in this instance. But one, in terms of the tentacles that spread so far in a case like this, one that I'd never thought of, uh, was about the journalism involved. So we had contact from the son of Pat Booth, who was, of course, the brilliant investigative journalist whose work on the Crew homicide case exposed the fact of the police planting evidence, that bullet cartridge outside the kitchen window at Jeanette and Harvey Crewe's house. That work with Jim Sprott, Dr. Jim Sprott, ultimately led to Arthur Allen Thomas being pardoned and then compensated. So Pat Booth's son made contact uh, to say that he was enjoying listening to the district, which was good, but to also point us to a piece of work from Pat's from 1997, which the son says answers all the questions, such as the half-eaten meal on the table and who fed the baby, which of course remains a question uh, of discussion. And this theory of Pat Booth's from '97 is a murder-suicide theory. So the son says that answers every question, including why Len Demler, why his behaviour was so odd. Uh, He goes on to say that he met Arthur Alan Thomas and his brother again at his father Pat's funeral last year, and i loved the way that you know he he lives in the district now this son of pat booths and he describes the thomases as beautiful honest simple new zealand farmers salt of the earth with a heart of gold so yeah this this idea of the intergenerational aspect and the effects on families is really interesting to me
0: mm. and it comes through in other cases as well and you know we dealt with we've dealt with other cases of injustice we've seen it ourselves And we also heard from the family of Rex Haig, who was found guilty of the 1994 murder of a fisherman on the west coast, I think it was. Mm -hmm. The conviction was quashed in 2006 because there was serious doubt cast on the reliability of the evidence against him. And the family members had reacted to a piece which ran on the Stuff site as a companion to the podcast. It was a story called The Curse of Injustice and What It Does to People. And they got in touch to say, I don't think anyone has really looked at the far-reaching toll, but you touched on something very real, as we all live through the pain and some are still feeling it now. And that really, and that sort of resonates, doesn't it, with what we heard from the Thomas family, from other, other people, other characters in the district. And those messages remind us of the sort of intergenerational impact of
1: injustice. It just goes on and on and on. And she attached, that family member attached a picture Uh, of them leaving the Court of Appeal in 2006 and feeling good about the outcome, saying there were happy times. Mm. It's quite affecting, isn't it, when you receive stuff like that. Now, we also wanted to talk about uh, the theories and feedback around what actually happened. Um, Some of them are quite well-founded, potentially, Mm -hmm. but some of them are a little bit out there. Would that be the term?
0: Yeah, I think that's the term we'd use.
1: Like this one from, it's always a giveaway when they're anonymous, mm. isn't it? Who calls themselves discretion. It concerns, I mean, I'm not. there's nothing wrong with coming to us anonymously.
0: But no, you secure drop, <laughs> you can come forward That's anonymously right. to us.
1: Make of this what you will. It concerns allegations that a policeman was having an affair with someone in the district and that this triggered a reaction which led to the murders.
0: Yeah, it kind of sounds like a daytime soap opera. Plot uh, and there didn't seem to be any evidence that backed it up, so perhaps we'll just leave that one there. Yeah, someone else came forward to say that they'd heard that the killer was someone who'd done work for the crews, had fallen out with them over money. Mm -hmm. Now, sounds familiar, yeah, because we've actually heard that theory before, it's not new, uh, but it's a theory that doesn't have any direct evidence attached to it. And so, in the making of the podcast, we chose to leave it aside, and there's kind of a good reason to that because. You know, it would seem a little unfair in a podcast about injustice to then perpetuate something that may well be an injustice against someone else.
1: You know, but forgive me for banging on about this, though. That's what happens, as you said, in the podcast itself. When uh, there are so many unanswered questions and an unsolved crime, then these rumours persist.
0: Mm, They fill the vacuum.
1: That's right. Mm. So another piece of feedback came with a string of questions. Who gained from their deaths? Who was the tall American seen in the area days prior to the crime? But it came from someone who asked that we not expose them. So that's not particularly
0: helpful. Not really helpful. Um, But other messages were more plausible and interesting. Uh, We heard from someone who told us about how she had a family member an uh, ex-father-in-law actually, who at the time of the murders had repeatedly tried to hand in his twenty-two rifle for testing. So that speaks to the fact that the police were trying, to, or they put out a message saying that they were collecting all the guns in the district for testing to compare them to the murder weapon. Um, I, but, re- I really yeah. was
1: intrigued by this particular email but because of the amount of discussion about guns in the podcast and the the number of, you know, unfinished leads that we've talked about, mm. I really liked her tone, which was, I'm not saying my ex-father-in-law is a murderer. This information is more to do with the handling of the case and the lack of interest the police had at the time in actually examining all guns in the area. Now, when you look at, you know, the, the gun found at Tony Clark's Dam, And when you look at the Mackin gun, it's the same theory, isn't it? Mm. Lack of interest in what could potentially have been the murder weapon. Yeah,
0: yeah. So in this case, the gun wasn't even collected and tested. I think there were 60-odd guns that were collected in the district, which the Royal Commission, when they looked at it in 1980, they were pretty scathing of the size or the amount of guns that were collected for testing for comparison purposes. And really, this is just emphasising again that once it seems the police turned their attention to Arthur Thomas. They became fixated with him and they didn't really look elsewhere. They didn't seem interested in casting the net wide at
1: all, did they? Which is what De- Des Thomas says, mm. continues to say. Mm. Shall we talk about the Axel evidence, You know, which is such a crucial piece of um, information because it ties the murders to the Thomas farm, right? Mm. And that's the bit of evidence that the police continue to cite as the smoking gun. But it's so controversial, isn't it? Yeah, and it's evidence that the Thomas family rejects
0: and Dez says he believes the evidence was planted. And when you hear him talk about that, you can see that it's a plausible theory. I
1: find the way that he describes it really plausible.
0: Yeah, it's quite compelling. It's
1: quite compelling. You know, when he talks about it being a farm dump that had been operational as a farm dump for what? How many years by that stage? Well, it
0: was five years between when the axles were, or the stub axles were allegedly put there and mm-hmm. when they were found by the police, the guy who finds them, Len Johnston, stands on the bank, jumps into the dump and he finds them.
1: Together. Which Dears had that great line about, didn't he? That you can't find two socks in your sock drawer, yeah. let alone two stub axles in a farm dump that's had years and years worth of farm and household rubbish, rubbish poured into it. Mm. They're right there together. Anyway, he was really compelling and plausible yeah. when he described that. Yeah. So we've heard from someone, We had an email from
0: someone, who was recounting a time that they were at a wreck's yard. And we haven't been able to see this anywhere else. It seems like information. A yard back at the mm. time of the murders. Yeah, so back in 1970. And this would have been at the time, the phase of the inquiry, where police were trying to establish who owned the axle, the axle that had been underneath the bodies. And this person says that they were there when the police turned up and showed the owner of the wrecker's yard this axle. And the person says that the wrecking yard owner thought that the welding on the axle was really distinctive and that it had been done using an airplane generator. Now I don't know enough about axles and welding to know
1: the significance of that, but do you it's want me to tell you? Please. <laughs> <laughs> what did he say? He's adamant about it, though, isn't he? Yeah. That the police were really interested in it. This is before they focused their attention on Arthur Allen Thomas. Yeah. And so the police
0: were quizzing this wrecker's yard owner about it, seemed really interested in it. And what happens?
1: Ends, goes nowhere. Goes nowhere. It goes into the ether. So this person says exactly that. He's never seen it come out anywhere, and given the level of the police interest at the time, he can't understand why not. Mm. If
0: there's a clue about what this means, then why do why wasn't it followed up? It's or so intri- why wasn't it handed on to the defence? You know, indeed, Like indi- there's lots disclosure. of information, yeah, exactly, yeah. that would have been useful to the defence, yeah. but
1: it just disappears. It's intriguing, isn't it, that 50 years on, people such as, as this are coming forward, hearing the district, and they're carrying around this kind of, you know, really... Yeah, intriguing information. Yeah, like, like secrets they for Secrets years. that they're holding on to and yeah. they feel compelled to get in touch, which is, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah,
0: I mean, this person put it as just another piece of the puzzle, I guess.
1: Right, which it is, but again, potentially something significant which goes nowhere. Mm, which we saw so many examples of in the district. Yeah, so the,
0: the, the idea of the police, I don't know what you call it, sort of dodgy behaviour in relation to the crew case, it was something else that another correspondent wanted to tell us about, didn't they?
1: Mm-hmm. So he was a family member of Paul Ten, he became a QC later, didn't he? Yeah, I think so, yeah. uh, Who was Arthur Thomas's first defence lawyer and was family friends with Kevin Ryan, who acted for Arthur at the second trial, and in his email... He says, I can remember both men on separate occasions sitting in our lounge at home telling us stories of the police and their handling of the prosecution. For example, Paul told us that when he was in his offices with his team, they would discuss individuals who they might need to subpoena to appear in court for the defence. Before they could do this, the police had got there first and subsequently the witnesses were never called to trial, thus robbing the defence team of bringing to light any information that may have made Finding Thomas guilty quite difficult. So the implication, of course, was that the New Zealand police had bugged Paul Thames office. And this correspondent says, This case has fascinated me and eroded my confidence in the police. I mean it's a big call, that allegation, isn't it? The idea of bugging people's phones and offices. But it's one you actually put to the police, didn't you, after Des said that he believed that his phone is still bugged to this day, Dez Thomas. Yeah, and it was just another thing that wasn't really answered. And it just, you know, it's sort of,
0: you know, that whole problem that we encountered in the making of the district of just not getting decent answers, not hearing from the police. But this is, you know, the thing that really kind of erodes confidence and shakes confidence in the police is why these things that continue to do that, that's sort of why we really need to hear from the police, don't we? And... hear hear some decent answers or hear from someone independent if the police don't want to answer us.
1: Yeah, that's right. That review to end all reviews has patently not answered the questions that are still outstanding in people's minds.
0: Yeah, it seems that things went backwards from the review back, you know, the 1980 Commission of Inquiry had actually done quite a good job. And the Lovelock review came along and sort of took things backwards, really.
1: But why? Like, is there a motivation for that, do you think? Yeah, well, it just is curious, isn't
0: it? It makes you wonder why that is. Why don't the police have an interest in getting to the bottom of this thing, answering all these questions and being open? If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you.